It is great to be here. And I've driven by this church a lot of times. And, and uh, you know, Pastor showed me inside one day as you were fixing it up and all of that. And I actually spoke here a number of years ago, but it was just a vacant hotel at the time. And uh, to see what God has done with it, it's just incredible. And to be here, Lordy, Lordy, Miss Sarah is 40. Can you believe that? Oh, my. And uh, I've got a secret as the years go by. If you'll gain a little bit of weight, it stretches the skin and you can't see the wrinkles. It's amazing. But I wouldn't advise you to do that. I do that. So people often say, you just don't look your age. I say, well, wait till I lose weight. Then I will, okay? But it's great to be here and uh, what an occasion. And to know that she really wanted me to come, that's really great, to be invited. And uh, I've known Jeremy and uh, I've watched him and learned uh, and listened to him speak. Speaks at Brother Copeland's every year. It's always one of the ones I look forward to. And uh, so it's just an honor to be here. And there's things out on the table and all that, but I just want to say I'm happy to be here and to see what God has done in your church. And I can just tell you this, the, the local church for this time period we live is no accident, it's called the church age. This is God's center of activity at all times. And he said, I'll build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's not just the body of Christ as a whole, that's the local church. It comes down to it, you follow God and all kinds of opposition can come, but you'll still be standing at the end when it's all done. Amen. Well, open up in your Bibles this morning. I don't know how long this is going to take. I prayed. God gave me a sermon I haven't spoke yet, so we'll see how it comes out. I come up here with fear and trembling, but I'm trusting God. It's going to be great. All right. Turn with me to Acts, and we're going to get there eventually, Acts chapter 2. And you can find verse 16, but we're not going to be there yet. I'm going to give you a nice long introduction to it. I went to work for Kenneth Hagin Ministries in the early 1970s. And uh, my wife and I just got married. I knew I was called into ministry. I was managing a couple of stores in Tulsa, one after the other, electronic stores. And uh, one of my hobbies was electronics. And so anyway, my wife said one day, she said, there's an ad here in the paper that a ministry needs someone to run radio, reel-to-reel tapes. Anybody remember Real, no, you're too young. Okay, reel-to-reel tapes. And so anyway, I called, and the lady that answered the phone went to our church. And she said, Kenneth Hagin Ministries. And I told my wife, I said, I've heard of this man before. Uh, you know, and so I went to check it out. And when I went, I knew I was supposed to be working there. And the salary they offered me was half what I was making in the world. And so my wife had to go to work because we just had a brand new baby. And I went to work for him, but I knew I was in the right place. He might experience that You know, nothing seems to be right in the natural, but you know you're in the right place. I knew I was in the right place. I was the 15th employee. I came on a couple of people after Billy Brim, and uh, we became friends, and we'd talk across the hall and things, but I just knew Brother Hagin because I worked with him. I didn't know him before that time. I had a little trouble with the message of faith. I was raised Pentecostal, and uh, so, you know, it's not that I believed in works. I was very grace-oriented, but I just couldn't understand this message of faith. And so uh, God knew right where to put me. I listened to every reel-to-reel three times. I had to listen to it for timing. Next of all, take out the, you know, coughs and wheezes and things like that and finally come down to the right timing. So I listened to it three times. The same with masters for cassette tapes. I did those. And I was in there all the day long listening to that. I'd come home at night and my wife say, what did he teach on today on the, on the tapes? I said, you can have what you say. She said, okay. We'd run around the house going, we're millionaires. We're millionaires. We're millionaires. 
I never told him that. I just, I made fun of him when I got home because I had never heard anything like this before until I heard Fred Price teach Mark 11, 23 and 24. I came home after the meeting at camp meeting. My wife said, oh no, you believe it, don't you? I said, uh-huh, I see it, I believe it. It took somebody else to help open it up. But until that time, Brother Hagen was just a minister, a few employees and a slowly growing ministry. And I got to know him. I'd come to him after, you know, making a broadcast. We'd talk a little bit about it and he'd tell me some things he wanted. And we'd talk at the lunch table with the other employees. And I just got to know him that way until I started teaching at Rama. And the second or third year I was teaching at Rama, uh, he was going to be uh, there speaking, and something came up, he had to leave. So he came to me in my office and said, I've got to go. He said, Brother Colton's coming today, I want you to introduce him. The blood ran from my head. <laughs> Brother Colton, I've got to introduce Brother Colton. I began to sweat. I, began, I mean, because Brother Colton, I felt like a nobody standing next to a somebody when I stood beside him. Anybody ever felt like that standing next to somebody? Come on, stick those honest hands in the air. You all have. And I felt like, I mean, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? To this day, I still don't remember what I said. I probably floundered and everything because he was so important in my life. He came to the church that we attended, and I went up on a prayer line one day, and he read my mail. I mean, he prophesied over me, and I mean, I was crying afterwards. He did it again later on, so I didn't want to get near him. He was the fourth member of the Godhead. And... <laughs> I didn't like being next to him, and so I felt, you know, I felt so inadequate. Again, I felt like a nobody standing next to a somebody. Now, I'm going to tell you something, what I'm going to teach you. There's nothing wrong with knowing you're a somebody. I'm knowing you're a nobody because you're halfway there. The problem is people that think they're somebodies, and they're convinced of it. That's the one that God has to undo the somebody till you become a nobody, then make you a somebody again what he can work with. And so in the Bible, we have examples of that. Throughout the Word of God, we have examples of those that did that. Moses. Moses was a somebody, and God chose him. But he thought because he was a somebody, he probably figured this all out. Well, I know why God chose me. I'm probably second or third in line to become the next Pharaoh. I manage all the military. I do all the things around here. That's why he needs it, because if I'm going to defend this nation, they're going to need a military. I've got it. They're going to need some government. I've got it. And he went and killed an, uh, he killed an Egyptian to prove he could do what God wanted. God said, this is not what I wanted and banished him to the backside of the wilderness for 40 years until he sweated Moses out of Moses. And one day he said, okay, it's time for you to go back. He says, no, 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 I can't even speak. And God said, that's great. That's exactly what I want. I'll be in your mouth. I'll be your voice. I'll talk through you. See, God doesn't mind if you're a nobody. If you realize you're a nobody, he'll come and help you. But if you're a somebody and you think you're a somebody, he has to sweat that out. And that's what he did with Moses. Moses finally became the man that God wanted. Saul of Tarsus, same way. He was a somebody. He was a Pharisee. He was sent to Arabia to become a nobody. And he was there for 14 years. He said, for 14 years, I was unknown by face. In fact, he probably came back and people didn't even recognize him when he came back after all that time. And so again, that God had to make Saul into a, a nobody before he could finally turn him into a somebody. What I want to talk about today is what's God's idea of a nobody? We have our own ideas. We get around certain people and think we're a nobody, but God has a place for nobodies if you realize that only God can make you who you're supposed to be. A real nobody knows, I can't do it myself. I have to have God. And throughout the Word of God, we have examples of that. You know, there are, I'm going to tell you a quick story from the Bible about six nobodies. 
that are all kind of, they're all kind of divided, but I'm going to draw them all together. There was a lady named Rahab. She was a prostitute. And she heard about, uh, she, and she had two men come to her who were, who were uh, spies. And they came to her about 40 years after she received the Lord. She was a prostitute at the time, and she heard about how that God split the Red Sea. She told them this. They, hadn't, they didn't even know she existed. And so they came into the town, and she met them, and she started telling them about 40 years ago. She said that when your God split the Red Sea, I knew he was God. She said, when you came across, I knew this land belonged to you. And she said, I realized that God is God in heaven above and in earth beneath, and she accepted the Lord as her Savior, what we would call being saved. She accepted Jehovah. Her parents accepted Jehovah. And her next statement that was, what took you so long to get here? Not only do I know this, the nation knows as this land belongs to you. Now, they haven't accepted your Lord, but I have. They've been sweating. They've, their knees have been knocking together for 40 years knowing you were coming. Why did it take so long? And they didn't get into it at all. We, our knees were knocking because we thought you were all giants and you're going to kill us. I don't care how tall they were. They were standing next to God. That's why they knew that land didn't belong to them anymore. So she again met them. And so these two young men came into town. They came to this prostitute's house, but she was no longer a prostitute. I told this story one time. A lady said, yeah, I turned a couple of kids loose in the new town. They'll head to the prostitute's house. I said, no, no, the Holy Spirit led them. She said, I've heard that before too. And I said, no, when she, they got there, she had not been a prostitute for 40 years. In fact, during the 40 years, she turned into rope making. She went into a legitimate business. She had flax laying up on her roof, and when the two spies came, she hid them under the flax and had rope up there where they could let themselves down. And so she, again, was, had a completely changed life by that time. And so we're told, does anybody know who she married? Anybody remember her husband's name? Because she got married after that. Salmon. S-A-L-M-O-N. We're going to talk about him in just a moment. Salmon is a, is a Jewish name. She was a Canaanite. And so one of the spies, the, the whole thing comes back to, scholars have asked for years, where did this husband come from? And when they found out he was Jewish, they said she didn't know any Jewish. For 40 years, she never knew a Jew until two men came into her camp and two men came to her house. She married one of the spies. His name was Salmon. And they, they brought this up and they said, there's no other way around it since she knew none. And she had a husband named Solomon. I'll get into this in just a moment because you're looking at me like, what planet did you land from? <laughs> I'm going to tell you which planet I landed from. It's the word of God. So again, she married this man named Solomon. And now I want to stop for just a moment. She and Solomon are married. I want to jump about a couple of generations or a generation later. And I want to talk about another woman named Ruth. She has a book named after her. And Ruth, uh, Ruth, again, though uh, she, Ruth escaped, Ruth was actually part of, Ruth was a Moabitess and she lived in the land of Moab. There was a family that came over to where she was and the family that came over, the head of the family was Naomi. Her husband was the head of the family. She was part, she was part of the parents. But Naomi and her husband and two sons came over. They were just trying to get out of Israel and by the time they came to the land of Moab, they came there, their two, her, their two sons married Moabite women. And her husband just completely went nuts. I mean, he was going with the, the, the uh, religion of the land and all that. And Naomi was the only one that stayed with God. After a while, her husband died and her two sons died. 
And one of the daughters-in-law just ran off and said, I don't want any more to do with you people. She ran off. But one daughter-in-law was left. And this daughter-in-law that was left was uh, Ruth. And Ruth said to her mother-in-law, she said, I've accepted your Lord. You've told me about him. I've accepted your Lord. And she said, I simply want you to know where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And she says, well, I'm headed out of here. I'm headed back to Israel. So she went back to Israel with her mother-in-law and lived with her, dedicated to her. And so she had to get a job. So the only job she could find in the nation of Israel was being a gleaner. She was out there that followed all the harvesters and anything that was left over, she would get to take home. And that's what they lived off of because she was not a Jew. She was not a citizen, although she was a believer in the Lord. And she probably kept questioning herself because she started studying the Bible extensively when she got to Israel. And as she studied it, she probably came across the place where it said Moab was the enemy of God. And she was a Moabitess. And she said, God's got a curse on that nation. What am I supposed to do? But she just kept collecting and collecting and collecting as she was gleaning and bringing those home. And one day, the man that ran that, that acreage she was on was named Boaz. And Boaz looked and saw her out in the field and va va voom. <laughs> I like her. She's sweet. She's cute. He kind of hung around just a little bit, stayed his distance. And so he told all of his workers, leave handfuls for her back there. Don't just, just, don't just harvest as well as you can, get it all. Take handfuls and leave it. And all of a sudden, she started striking it rich. She came home with baskets of stuff. And her mother-in-law said to her, how did you get on? She said, I don't know. It's just all over the place. I just keep collecting it up and bringing it home. And she said, whose land are you on? And she said, his name is Boaz. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, said, Boaz, we're related to him. Somewhere back there, we're related to him. She said, I had forgotten about this, but we have a law in Israel called the kinsman redeemer. And if, she said, if, but you have to ask him. A kinsman redeemer is related to your husband who's died, and you can go to a kinsman redeemer, and they can, they can take you as the, as the wife. And that's your redemption. She said, you can ask him. So she was scared to ask him, but one day she went into the barn where all the stuff was stored, and he was laying there asleep, and so she curled at his feet. And when he woke up, he saw her, and he recognized her. He said, what are you doing? She said, sir, we're related to each other, and my husband died a number of years ago. And she said, I understand you have a kinsman redeemer, and I'd like to know if you would be my kinsman redeemer. He thought about it for a while, and since he'd already had a preview of how good she looked, he said, yes, I'll be your kinsman redeemer. And as he purchased her to be her kinsman redeemer, my imagination goes a little bit wild right here. She sure accepted fast, or did she? She probably had so many questions. I came from a cursed group of people. I accepted this Lord. I've come over here, but God still talks about my nation has a curse on it. How am I supposed to act? Now I've had all these, this fortunate, wonderful stuff happen to me. How am I supposed to take that? And I probably think before they got married, she just bared her heart to Boaz. I'm from a cursed race. What am I supposed to do? I know you've taken me in, but how am I supposed to act? I don't know what to do. What do you want me to do? And he talked to her for a while, and she still was scared. She probably was a little fearful. He said, okay, I know what I want to do. I want to take you home and introduce you to my mom and dad. That was coming next. But I've told my mom and dad about you. I want you to introduce. She says, no, I just still want my question. He said, don't even think of your questions. Come and meet my mother and come and meet my dad. So she went home to meet them. And so as she did, 
She walked in, of course, and he was talking to his parents. He looked at her and said, I want you to meet my dad. Well, and he introduced his dad to her and said, this is my father. My father's name is Salman. I want you to meet my mother. Well, who's she? Her name is Rahab. She went, Rahab, I've studied about her. She was a, she was a, Canaanite, yes. And all of a sudden she realized something. She said to her, tell me about being a Canaanite. She says, it's a cursed race. But I got redeemed out of it because I accepted the Lord. And I found that races can, be, races can be cursed, but individuals who come to the Lord can be redeemed out of that curse. And I've been redeemed out of that curse. And probably all of the questions in Ruth's mind just went right out the window. Because Boaz was the son of of Rahab and her husband at that time. We're going to find it. We'll find this out in just a minute. I'm going to tell you about what happened. But I want to jump over for another couple of generations. And I want to talk about another woman that in the Bible came from a cursed race of people. And David had an affair with Bathsheba. Bathsheba also came from a cursed race. And so she was there. And he, again, committed adultery with her. Everything that could have gone wrong with her went wrong with her. Everything that could have gone wrong with David went wrong with David. And David finally married her. And God ended up making the, when the, that one of the best marriages ever. I have talked with couples who tell me they have the worst marriage on earth. And I said, you don't even compare to David and Bathsheba. If there was two people that were not meant for each other, it was those two. She was already married. He was already married. Adultery was involved. A child was got pregnant. He murdered her husband. I said, everything that could go wrong went wrong. But God forgave everything and made that into one of the finest marriages ever. Don't you tell me God can't work your marriage out. Because he can't. There is no marriage that is too far gone for God to work out. And so David and Bathsheba begin to get that all worked out in their life. And so we have three women, none of them Jews, all from different races, all marrying Jews. And when they married into the Jewish line, I'm sure they had questions, but this question was answered. I'm getting all of this information that I'm giving you right now from two verses of Scripture. It's all brought out from Matthew chapter 1, a genealogy in verses 5 and 6, telling you the name of Bathsheba, telling you the name of Bathsheba, uh, just a minute. The name of Rahab's husband, his name is given there. Not any background is given, but I had to go look it up. And they said, scholars all seem to agree he had to be one of the two spies. Ruth and Boaz are brought out in there. So is David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba, and David himself became the great, great, great grandson of, Be of Ruth and Boaz. And so when we see the whole thing figuring out, we understand something. God can take nobodies and make somebody's out of them. And through the word of God, we have that one after another. And so this is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, that Ruth and Boaz became the great-great-grandparents of David himself. You know, I've talked to ministers before about this subject because, you know, oftentimes ministers get a high opinion of themselves. I'm glad I was raised in a small church. My dad's first church had 30, his second church had 30, and the third one he had had 60 people. He thought he'd died and gone to heaven with 60 people. He was so happy with that. And finally, though, I grew up in very small churches, 
And uh, then later on, they, he took us to one of the finest churches in Tulsa where the charismatic movement was being poured out. And they're the ones that brought Brother Colton in. And I just had a chance to meet all these people. I so appreciated church and had a love for church. I just thought if I do anything, I'd like to just be a pastor of a church sometime. Never thought I would be. Thought I'd probably end up teaching at Rama for the rest of my life until a door opened up. And for 33 years, I was the pastor of a church. But one thing I did was I appreciated people. I mean, it's so great to hear about Sarah this morning, how much she loves you. To have love from a pastor toward a congregation, the pastor's wife toward a congregation. I'm going to tell you something. It's really rare to have genuine love. Most pastors consider themselves to be somebodies around a group of nobodies. I've had pastors tell me, I, I don't ask my congregation about anything. He says, in fact, if I ever need anything that I don't understand, what I do is they, I don't accept criticism or ask for help from other people. Only ministers I respect, I only listen to my peers. I had one tell me I don't accept criticism or advice from my congregation. And I said, well, you know, if you don't accept advice from your congregation, think about this. God spoke to a prophet through his donkey, and I certainly think your people are better than a donkey. If you can listen to a donkey and get advice, why can't you listen to your people and get advice? And so I just learned a long time ago, let the congregation come and talk to me, ask me questions, and I've learned some tremendous things. I'd had the church for probably about three months and my first lessons were going to be, we had a pastor that started the church. He was there for five years. My wife and I were with the original 32 or 52 that started the church. And I just took anything I could do. If I could teach a class, I would take it. I set up the sound system, all these different things. And that's what I did. I was just Bobby around the church or Bob around the church. And my wife and I were helping. We actually set up cribs because we were portable for some five years. At the end of five years, we built our first congregational church. We had our first building, and the pastor went off to the mission field and turned it over to the second pastor who stood up and told everybody there, I plan on being here for the next 30 years of my life. And so he began preaching and teaching, but inside of me, my wife and I had it that we were going to be the pastors. And so I thought, well, Lord, maybe you've given me a 30-year advance notice that I'm going to be the pastor of this church. And so, you know, I was just there, but I kept getting this thing, I'm supposed to have this church. And my wife walked in, and the pastor told me he was going to, and he started having rotating teachers on Wednesday night. He would teach for a little bit, I would teach for someone, somebody else would teach, and we'd all take our turn, and I was teaching some portions of the book of Joshua. I was studying in my office for that evening, and my wife walked into the office, Loretta walked in, and said, he's going to quit in one week. He's going to quit a week from tonight. I said, well, I kind of had it in me. He's going to be leaving. I said, he's only been there for a year and a half. And she said, no, it's going to happen a week from tonight. So I went and taught that night. The next Wednesday night, I was teaching. He was sitting in the back of the auditorium. He got up and walked in the back and had a board meeting. They sat in that board for some 20 minutes. And then the door opened up and he walked out the door. And the board came to me and said, he just quit. He just quit. We don't understand. He didn't give us any time. He didn't give us a, a, any, a, somebody to fill in. He just turned around and walked off. And so they looked at me and said, we don't know what to do. Would you fill in till we find somebody? And I said, uh-huh. Yeah, I'll fill in till you find somebody. And so they looked and about two months later came back and said, we haven't found anybody yet. We're sorry to, imp to be an imposition, but would you keep on filling in till we find somebody? And I said, yes. So I kept filling in. And finally, after the two months, they came back and said, we can't find, in we can't find anybody that wants the church. And they said, uh, would you consider taking it? I said, yes. They said, would you be the pastor? I said, yes. They said, oh. 
would you mind a little longer filling in? Because we want to look a little bit longer. I mean, I took that as an insult, but I said, okay, go ahead. I knew God had talked to me, and after about two more months, they came back and said, well, we think you're supposed to be the pastor, so we're going to turn it over to you. And I said, thank you. And so we had a board meeting, all that. I took over the church, and from the very first service, I mean, it was like we were just knit to that congregation. My wife and I sat on the edge of the platform, and we started telling what we wanted in a church, and people were cheering, and people were applauding, and they, they loved it. And so I began to teach, and my first series that I began to teach was being faithful to come to church because I want them to be faithful to come to church. I taught how I'd been faithful all my life to come to church. I wasn't that faithful. My dad made me go to church. And so we were there because we had to be. And so anyway, but after that, it just became a habit in my life. And all of a sudden, I'd be just loving church. And I taught that. And about the sixth week I taught it, a man came up to me after church and said, I'm sorry, may I just say something? I said, yeah, go ahead. He said, I don't understand how you can stand up there and talk to us about being faithful to come to church. He said, I've been here from the beginning. You're the third pastor. I'm still here. How can you tell me I'm supposed to be faithful? Are you going to be faithful? The first one stayed five years and was gone. The second one was here for a year and a half. Now you're here. How long are you going to stay? I mean, it rocked me. I thought, no kidding. I should be telling them how faithful I'm going to be. And I got up the next week and said, I'm going to change this around. I'm going to get back to my sermon next week. But right now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful to this church. I'm going to be faithful to you. In fact, what I plan on doing is I plan on being here till I die. My goal is to die in the pulpit, have the ushers just drag my body out. <laughs> I'd love to do that. My associate just come up and finish the sermon. That'd be a great way to end the thing and just leave. I said, that's how committed I am here. And I said, if I'm 90 years old, 80 years old, and Jesus hasn't come back yet, that's how I plan on doing it. And there was like a sigh of relief came over. It's just like this, huh. And I realized something. I was asking them to be faithful. They needed me to be faithful first. It doesn't start out here. It starts up here. And I became faithful to do that. And the next week I got back to it. I had more people come up and thank me for it. And so, again, as I was doing that, God just began to lead me. And so, as, I, as that was happening, uh, as I was taking the church over again, and, and I was still, you know, doing some things and pastoring the church, I taught, a, I taught a series on healing one time, and I taught on the man that was let down through the roof and the four men that let him down through the roof. And as he came to, you know, and Jesus went over to him, Jesus looked at their faith and saw their faith. But what he said to the man was interesting. He said, son, your sins are forgiven you. And the man got up and began to walk. And I taught about that, you know, how this man, uh, you know, had asked for forgiveness and this, and, and apparently these men's faith, and he maybe had some doubts going on in his mind and all that. A man came over to me and said, I've looked at that verse before too, and he says, let me tell you what my thought is on it. And I'd heard people give me their thoughts on verses and stuff. And of course, that little bit of thing wants to rise up in you. You're not the pastor, I'm the pastor. Don't correct my sermons. But I listened to what he had to say. He said, do you think that man possibly couldn't forgive himself? And when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven you, that actually the man just couldn't forgive himself, and it suddenly went across him. He suddenly saw it, and like, whew, it went through his mind. I've been forgiven from the time I asked for it. And I said, well, it'd have to be in the perfect tense in the Greek. I'm going to go look it up because that's what it would mean is, son, your sins have been forgiven from the time you asked it. You've been forgiven all this time. I went and looked it up, and sure enough, it was in the perfect tense. I thank God for sending him along to tell me that. 
I got a whole new insight into that whole sermon on forgiving yourself as well, in God, as, well as God forgiving you. And so I, I've learned through the years just to accept what people have to say, listen to what they have to say because many of them have tremendous viewpoints. Again, in the school over here, I teach at CBC. The students come up and tell me what they think about a particular subject. And a lot of it, I've gone, you know, I never thought about it that way, gone home and studied it and quite a bit of it added to my own teaching about it. Whoever gave us the idea that we're Mr. Smart and they're Mr. Dumb? Okay, we get that idea because somehow we get the idea after being in the ministry for some time that, Lord, I know it is. I know that, I, you know, they're nobodies and I'm somebodies. We don't admit it, but that's about the way we feel. And that's why they came to school so that I can make a somebody out of them. And that's not the reason I'm there at all. I want you to go with me. Go to Acts chapter 2 for just a moment. Go to Acts the second chapter. Can anybody tell me what was so great about the... Day of Pentecost? It's not a trick question. So what was great about the day of Pentecost? What's that? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I'm going to tell you something. The reason why that was such a great day is because suddenly God took nobodies and made somebodies out of them. The day of Pentecost was an open invitation for nobodies. People that thought, well, could I ever even stack up? Could I ever be as good as someone else? In Acts chapter 2, I want you to notice what uh, is said here about the outpouring of the Spirit from, uh, from uh, Peter. And Peter is now quoting again Joel chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 16, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It will come to pass in the last days, said God, that I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. Say all flesh. Well, what's all flesh mean? Let's go on and find out. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Well, that's never happened before. I want you to notice something. He didn't say your sons and daughters would be prophets. He said they'll prophesy. We're living in a day in 1 Corinthians 14 where we may all prophesy. You remember Philip's four daughters? He didn't say they were prophets. He had four daughters that prophesied. And their prophecies were accurate over Paul as he came to them. What it's simply saying is, God said, I'm going to pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and I'm going to start with your kids. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. What a tremendous thing. He goes on to say, after that, your young men will see visions. That's Peter and Cornelius. They had visions. This hadn't happened before. Let me tell you who got to prophesy in the Old Testament. Prophets. That's it. The common people couldn't go prophesy. The priest may have something to say from the word of God. The king might have something to say as far as the running of the country. But the people were basically nobodies. They didn't figure into God's plan. They had to go and get their leadership from somebody else. He said, here's what's happening on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out, and he's going to be poured out on everybody, all. And all starts with your family, with your kids, your sons and daughters. Then next of all, he goes on to say that your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. He goes on to say in verse 18, and upon my manservants. What's a manservant? This is the kid that mows your lawn. On your manservants, I'll pour out of my spirit. And on your maidservants, this is the girl that comes to clean your house out. God said, I'm looking at everybody and no longer is there any nobodies. I'm seeing there's anybody as a somebody that the Holy Spirit could be poured out on. What a day we live in. Custom made for nobodies. And I felt like a nobody growing up. 
I used to be standing next to Brother Copeland. I had no idea what I was going to think, what I was going to say, what I was going to even introduce him as. How can Bob say anything about him? But I felt that way my, almost my entire life. It took me a, quite a while to get over that and realize God had made me into a somebody, but a somebody that needed him. Not a somebody that was, uh, you know, on my own strength. No, the somebody that God wanted me to be was somebody that leaned on God and God would make me into a somebody that people would want to come and hear. Again, it comes back to it in this verse of Scripture. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. In the day we're living in, He simply said any believer can end up being an apostle or a prophet or a pastor or an evangelist or a teacher. And even if not, they can advise an apostle. Here we have a description of that. In this story, in Acts chapter 9, we have the story of a nobody, basically Ananias. He just appears on the scene. He worked, he's apparently one that he attends the church. He's a great guy, but overall, just as far as comparison, he has no call on his life that we can see. The Holy Jews just spoke to him and mentioned to him that I'm, I want you to go and see Saul. In Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 18, let's start with verse 10. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. God had already used deacons up until this point. Stephen and Philip had been used back in chapter 6 into chapter 7 and chapter 8. They had been used the first time ever recorded that those who just worked in the church were now suddenly called into the ministry. And so Ananias was not a pulpit minister. He was just a disciple. So there is no such thing in the Christian life as a part-time minister. I'm going to just erase a couple of words. I don't like these words, laity and clergy. There's no such thing in the Bible. You say, well, I'm not, I don't work in the church, so I'm not clergy. I, I'm just, just me a layman on the outside. Listen, the moment you got born again, you entered into full-time ministry. And whether that's in a church or whether that's out on the street, because the gospel is now preached more on the street than should be preached in church. He didn't say go into all the churches and preach the gospel. He said go into all the streets, go into all the nations and preach the gospel. And pastors of churches can't do all of that. That's why it takes you. You know why God called you? Because he wants janitors to witness to janitors and secretaries to secretaries and bosses to bosses and assistant managers to assistant managers, teachers to teachers. We infiltrate society all through the week and God's intended that we take the message of salvation that came from the cross and take it to all the world. And I can tell you this, I'm going to receive rewards in heaven for pastoring, but you're going to receive rewards in heaven for winning souls to the Lord out in the world. And I can tell you this, he's going to say to both of us, I can think, oh, maybe I'll get that reward. And he'll call you up and give it to you instead and say the same thing to you that he said to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over much. And so... Again, there's no such thing as a Christian part-time minister, no laity, no clergy. This man that was there, Ananias, was an ordinary member, a church member. He was possibly a church worker. He was used by the Lord to point Paul in the right direction. He might have even had an occupation outside the church, but we're not told. He suddenly appeared, is used by God, and then disappears. We never hear about him again. He was chosen by God to direct a chosen minister. 
the chosen minister was Saul, but there was a lot of Saul that had to be taken out of Saul, and he was going to be used. No wonder God picked a man like him to direct the apostle Paul, to direct Saul. This guy, he couldn't even see him. He was blind, but he started questioning. Probably thought, well, maybe they sent Peter. Maybe they sent John, the two original disciples, to come and talk to me. Perhaps the pastor of the church has come and talked to me. And when he introduced himself, he said, who are you? He said, well, I just attend the church. Don't you know that must have been a slap in his face as far as he was concerned? Because he was so, listen, talk about, he called himself the chief of all sinners. He said, if everybody, anybody wanted an interview, I was the guy they would come to. He probably had more articles in Time Magazine, more things on the local news at night. If anybody wanted to know what was going on religious-wise in Jerusalem, they'd go to Saul of Tarsus. He was the man. He said, when it came to the things of the world and the things of religion, he said, I was it, the one that they came to. He said, and then after that, he said, suddenly, I just disappeared. God called him to the backside of Arabia for 14 years. And for 14 years, he said, I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea. And finally, after 14 years, he got to show his face again. And I imagine there's a lot of people that didn't even recognize him at the time. So, again, Ananias is called a certain disciple because he was chosen by God to direct a chosen minister. Paul later told about Ananias in a story. In Acts chapter 22, he rehearsed the whole thing and mentioned a name that nobody had ever heard of, and that was Ananias. Ananias also understood grace. He had laid hands on Saul and then told no one about it. Anyone else would be proud of laying hands on such an important man. They would run off and tell everybody, but Ananias told no one what had happened. What was the problem with Saul? Well, God wanted Saul to learn early the value of just anyone who's dedicated to the Lord. Saul might have expected a minister sent from Jerusalem, a church to lay hands on him, or even better, like I said, Peter or John the two original disciples of Jesus that were part of those that ran the church in Jerusalem, comes back to this that a man's position and power before he is born again is of no value to the Lord. I'm going to say that again. A man's or a woman's position or power before he is born again is of no value to the Lord. Why do we always go after the football stars to get them saved? Why do we go after the rock singers? to get them saved? Why do you go after the actors to get them saved? We suddenly think if they're important in the world, they'll bring their importance right over to the church and God said, that's not the importance I'm looking for. That's not the somebodies I'm looking for. There was a rock singer back in the 60s. I, I liked him and all that, Johnny. Um, I can't remember his last name anyway. Johnny Rivers, Johnny Rivers. And so anyway, I liked him, but anyway, he got saved. He got saved. Uh, in California, he walked into a church and was talking to the minister there and gave his life to the Lord during that service and walked up to the minister and said, you know who I am? He goes, I guess you're a Christian. Insulted him. He was insulted to hear that he was a Christian. I think that's the highest compliment anybody could give you to be a child of God. So he left that church and went and joined a church that they really catered to, you know, actors and singers and things like that. And a few years later, he never heard anything else about him. Folks, he challenged him by simply saying, you're a Christian. He didn't know who he was. But the point of it is, who cares who you are? It cares where God, what God has made you into. And that's why, again, we come to the things of God. So just as Moses had learned humility on the backside of the wilderness, Saul was going to become the Apostle Paul, unknown for 14 years, learning in Arabia. 
Let me just give you a little introduction to Ananias. Look at verse 11. In verse 11 it says, So the Lord said to him, And rise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one named Saul of Tarsus. You'll find him praying. All streets in Damascus are curved, but there's just one street that's straight, and they called it Straight. Saul was still praying because he had not heard any more from the Lord. And when he found him, he was praying. In a vision, God prepared both the one that would be prayed for and the one who would do the praying. A vision appeared to both. A vision appeared to Ananias and a vision appeared to Saul. And they both saw each other coming. Isn't God good to prepare both sides? I had a woman come to me one time when I was pastoring. She said, she said I'm in need of money and God told me to come because he told me that you'll give me money. And I said, wait a minute, you don't have the money and you can hear from God. I do have the money and I can't hear from God. I said, I didn't hear anything from the Lord. And I said, I'll give you some, but I can't tell you it's going to be God that's going to direct me to do it. I'll just do it out of the goodness of my heart. I gave her some. But she got upset and said, no, no, the Holy Spirit told me that you were going to give me the money. I said, I'm sorry. But again, I didn't know. In this particular case, the same thing happened with Peter and Cornelius Peter got a vision on a housetop of going to the house of Cornelius, and Cornelius had a vision of a man named Peter coming to his house. Isn't it good that God works on both ends and shows us that's the supernatural? This is how God did it. And at the time, neither one knew each other. One was an important man in the Roman government. That was Cornelius. And Peter was the man that, again, was used by God, but Cornelius didn't know Peter. And he came and introduced the Holy Spirit, and his whole household was born again, and then they were also spirit-filled. Again, in verse 12, a vision he had seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so he might receive his sight. He even knew the man's name before he came. Ananias, look at verse 13 and 14. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here at Damascus, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Isn't Ananias' answer typical? The first thing we have to do is inform God. You spoke when he said, Lord, have you heard what this man's doing? He's killing Christians. He said, I didn't know that. (laughs) One of my favorites is in the Old Testament where we have a prophet back there and a young man that was part of a household. And so in that story, we have that uh, the young man was on the threshing floor and the Lord appeared to him and came to him and said, you're going to, you mighty man of valor. He said, you're going to deliver. He says, "Uh, wait a minute, this is the least tribe in the entire 12 tribes. Next of all, I live in the least family of all the families in this least tribe. And next of all, I am the the least child in the house that has the children that's part of this. And he basically ended up on the bottom. And God said, no, you're a mighty man of valor and turned him into an incredible man that again saved the nation of Israel from the incoming nations around them. What we have again is Ananias' answer is so typical of many Christians. Verses 15 and 16, the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel and I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God told Ananias things that people would not see for 15 years. He will carry the gospel to Gentiles, Romans, Greeks. He will then carry the gospel to kings, Nero and Agrippa. He will carry redemption to the people of Israel, the religious leaders of Gentile capitals, and Jerusalem. 
And Paul suffered much for his ministry and died being beheaded. Verse 17, and Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him, he said, look at these next two words, brother Saul. This man that he knew was killing Christians. He put his arms around him and called him brother Saul. Don't you know that Saul must have just about wept, melted, at a man that came and put his arms around him and called him brother? Because I can tell you this up until this time, nobody wanted to claim and call him brother. The number of Christians he had killed. In fact, here's what's interesting, is that Saul had gone to Damascus to kill Christians. Can anybody tell me where Damascus is? Syria. He's leaving Israel. Why? He killed everybody he could find in Israel, was running out of people, and now was going to go into foreign countries to kill Christians. And on the way, God had to stop him because what was going to happen if God didn't stop him? Listen, Christianity would have come to a halt. There wouldn't be any Christians left. He was killing them so fast. And God stopped him there on the spot and gave him one chance, one last chance to repent and become a believer in Jesus Christ. And the Lord spoke to him. He accepted the Lord as his Savior, temporarily was blind, and it was the coming of an unknown that came and laid hands on him for him to recover his sight. What's the amazing thing about that? This is one of the few times in the Word of God at this point right here where a Christian laid hands on another Christian and not a leader of the church. Up until this time, it's still been Paul laying, or, uh, pardon me, Peter laying hands on, the, on those, and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem were laying hands on people. And this is the first recorded case of laying on of hands by someone who's not in the fivefold ministry. Peter and John have laid hands on the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8, but until now, no one who did not have a five-fold ministry had laid hands on anyone, and yet this was promised to them in Mark chapter 16 and verse 18, you'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. This wasn't written to pastors, it's written to all Christians, all believers, and for the first time, the Holy Spirit has instructed him to do so. In verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Let's take a few quick lessons from Ananias. In the New Testament, the gifts of the Spirit are available to all believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. The Holy Spirit can guide or lead any believer to help and give instructions to another believer no matter their status. Ananias might have been the only one who would go to Saul. To other ministers, they hated Saul and did not trust him. And God led Ananias, an ordinary believer, by a vision, just as Peter received a vision on the housetop and Paul would later receive a vision at Troas. Paul later failed when he would not receive warnings from ordinary believers. Toward the end of Paul's life, he refused to receive. He decided he would go to, to Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit tried to stop him from going to Jerusalem. And so uh, as the Holy Spirit tried to stop him, he wouldn't listen. So... He was first warned after that by ordinary believers in the street. He actually had believers come to him in the streets and told him, don't go. They knew what he was going on. They knew the turmoil inside of him, and they told him not to go to Jerusalem, but he wouldn't listen. Then by his own team, not to go to Jerusalem. Then Philip's four daughters prophesied to him and not to go to Jerusalem. And then finally warned by the prophet Agabus. It's kind of like he's going up. People in the streets warned him. 
the Holy Spirit warned him, people in the streets warned him, then his own team warned him, and then now four daughters that prophesied, and now finally Agabus the prophet comes along and says exactly what everybody else had been saying. Saul, you shouldn't be going. So Saul got to the point, or Paul got to the point where he wouldn't listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I'm simply telling you, again, what these verses are saying. We need to be open to each other. We need help from each other. You know what? If some of you are called a pastor, don't put yourself above your people. Understand something. Your people are very important. In fact, they've been called there also to talk to you. And just like in Paul's life, it was brought to him by people he traveled with, by people that he went to see, and even four daughters that prophesied. He still wouldn't listen. Ended up in prison where he probably didn't have to go to prison at that time. Later on, he would. But that time, God, again, spared him in that point. But it still comes back to this. We need each other. We're part of the body of Christ. The head needs the feet. The feet need the arms, the hands. All the different parts of the body need each other because God has put us all and knit us all together. And on top of that, things you might have to give, instructors at your church or instructors at the school, here to the leadership of the church. I think it's important that when you see something, you just come and approach people and tell them, here's what I see. If they receive it, fine. If they don't receive it, fine. But still comes back to this. You're called by God, and throughout the Word of God, there have been those times when God brought people, the right ones along, so that they would hear and they would listen and receive. We serve a great God. You have a fabulous church here. You have great leadership. God has blessed you tremendously with them. But I'm simply here to tell you the best is still yet to come. For this church, for the body of Christ, for the church in these last days, I was with our pastor the other day and he said something interesting. I'd been wondering because I'm, you know, on Andrew's board and Andrew's talking about what all he sees coming in the next numbers of years. And he was, he actually told the students out there, he said, my guys have come to me and told me that the plans I have is going to cost in the next 10 years a billion dollars. He said, I told him, don't mention the price. Just tell me <laughs> we're going to build the buildings. And he says, that's what's happening, and God's beginning to do all these things. Our pastor came to me the other day and was commenting on the fact I knew we were building a church, and the church is building a new building. He says, he said, for the past 40 hours, God's been speaking to me. The Holy Spirit's been speaking to me. He said, the plans are bigger than I could ever, ever imagine. I said, you know what that tells me? What that tells me is all these... Christians out there hiding in their homes, fearful because the Lord may be coming soon or the tribulation is going to start or whatever. God's simply saying, in the midst of all this stuff, keep doing the work I've called you to do. Nothing's going to stop it. Nothing's going to slow it down. We have the best, best provider that though anyone could ever have. Better than jobs or anything else and certainly better than our government, I can tell you right now. But in the meantime, what God has supplied for us, and I can tell you this, we haven't even made a dent in his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY and any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you and remember, you are always welcome here 
in the house of faith.